Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right, well, praise the Lord. Great to see everybody here this morning. Love Like No Other, Song of Solomon, a study in Song of Solomon. Paul, the apostle, told Christians that uh, all Scripture is profitable for us, all of it. This certainly includes the the wisdom and poetry books in in the Old Testament, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. And um, if you've dug into those, you know that we can learn so much from those amazing books of the Bible. But the Song of Solomon is just that. It is a song penned by Solomon, but given to us by God, from God. It's called the Song of Songs in the first verse because it's his best hit of all of his 1,005 songs. The Bible tells us he wrote... 1,005 songs, and this was his song of songs. It's a love song, which gives snapshots, uh, the lyrics of the song give snapshots of this couple and their attraction, their courtship, their marriage, uh, and then several different events in their marriage. You know, and so as we read, what we do is we start to pick up a lot of helpful principles about love and about love between a man and a woman in several different ways. We also, though, knowing the whole story of Scripture, knowing who the author is, we can also see innumerable analogies about the relationship between Christ and the church. And so it is a beautiful book and such a a uh, precious thing to study and I think so helpful for our relationships here horizontally and our re- vertical relationship with the Lord. Now last week uh, we saw in the first few verses that good character is what attracted her the most. Uh, this young maiden looked out and she saw a man of character and that's really what drew her. And when we talk about finding someone to marry, A wise young woman and a wise young man will place a higher value on the inner person over the outward person. We're not saying the physical attraction means nothing. We're going to get to all that. It is important. Um, And by the way, on this note, before we just launch in, I wanted to just bring up something that might be helpful as we go through, something that I've picked up over the last couple years in a great book by Pastor Ben Stewart, his book called Single, Dating, Engaged, Married. And he talks about the three C's that are necessary for a relationship to bloom. And if you're in our singles group, you will have heard this, I'm sure. But the first thing he talks about, and these are the three, it's cause, or I would say Christ, character, and then chemistry. Let me just break those down real fast. If, If for a relationship to happen and begin to bloom, these are the things that need to be there, or ought to be there if we're looking for a person. Uh, he says the first one, he calls it co- the cause, meaning we, we need to be on the same cause together. And as he, he obviously, 
He wants there to be a united front in this area, deepest uh, spiritual area of our heart. Of course, for Christians, what we're saying is this is a Christ thing. We need to be both founded on Jesus Christ. We need to be both have a solid relationship. We need to really match uh, in our relationships with the Lord. So Christ, first of all, we need to make sure that's okay before we move into a relationship with somebody. And the second thing is we're evaluating their character. What kind of a person are they? Are they moral, kind, disciplined, honest, etc.? We're looking for the person's deep character. And the last thing that then is chemistry. And that's just those natural things that attract two people, personality, sense of humor, looks, etc., etc. And those are the three things that kind of help we can kind of help funnel it down to things that are helpful to look for. Now, uh, the Shulamite maiden in our story is past that point, okay? She's already head over heels for her man here, Solomon, her beloved, as we keep seeing him called. She seems to be sitting here in chapter one, reminiscing about their relationship. Some people have pictured it as if she's sitting there in front of the mirror on her wedding day, thinking back to how they met and this, this attraction and this, their relationship and how it bloomed. But today, we're going to see now, if she is staring into this mirror, how she now turns inward. And she's going to think about herself for a moment, and she does what many women have the tendency to do, and that is to point out things about herself that she doesn't like. She's feeling insecure, some self-doubt. And then we're going to see how the words of her beloved and how God uses those, or he uses those to respond to her self-doubt and the kind of words that are best used. John and Alice were sitting on the sofa. They were sipping lemonade, and Alice turned to John and asked, John, do you think my hair is soft and shiny? John answered, yep. (laughs) Then Alice asked, John, are my eyes bright and beautiful? John replied, yep. After a few minutes, Alice continued, John, do you think my skin is smooth and white like porcelain? John answered, yep. At this, Alice smiled brightly and declared, John, you do say the sweetest things. (laughs) Okay, so guys, I think we can do better than that is my point this morning, okay? Let's learn a few things from the Song of Songs on how to use our words. And here's what we're going to see today, and this is kind of the driving uh, theme. Words nurture relationships. Words are so powerful, they nurture relationships. Now, the first words we're going to see is the maiden speaking, and she poetically speaks about how she feels about her appearance. Uh, So these are now words of self-doubt, words of self-doubt that we see first. Verses 5 and 6. She says, I am black, but comely. O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon, look not upon me, because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me, and they made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. In verse 5 there, she says, I am black but comely. Now this is not a statement about her race, but about her skin that has been tanned by the sun. That's what she explains. She said that her skin was like the tents of Kedar, which were made of the skin of black goats. And so the reason her skin, she's saying, and that's obviously 
uh, an over-exaggeration, but she's saying the reason that her skin was so tan was because she was forced to work for long periods by her family out in the sun. In verse 6, Now in that day, as you know, fair skin uh, was considered the more attractive than the tan skin because it showed that one had a more financial or social, higher financial or social status. You didn't have to go out and work in the sun. Funny, by the way, how beauty trends change, isn't it? Now we have places you can go to speed up the process to make it look like you've been working all day in the sun. <laughs> I don't understand. But so, so back then, her tan skin may not have been the most desirable for everybody, but to this man, to her beloved, she, he thought she was beautiful. And we're going to see that. A good time to remember here, though, that as we're looking at this, that beauty truly is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. It really is. And so again, if you can't tan, don't worry. <laughs> God has someone just for you, all right? But even though the maiden is aware of her skin that she feels like, it's just not right. It's, it's not what I want. It's not the standard of beauty in this era. I don't like what I look like. It does still seem that she is aware of her natural beauty. She uses the word in verse 5, comely. She says, I'm black but comely. Comely means suitable or pretty. So she seems to acknowledge that she has a simple, humble beauty. It seems she felt that, you know, she's not the most beautiful woman in the world in her eyes, but she wasn't the most ugly either. And really, she just felt like, as you go on to read there, that she, was, she wasn't able to care for herself like she would like to have cared for herself. Uh, she was forced to out, be out there working when she would have liked to go through all the beauty regimen. And it almost as if she's saying here, you know, I'm not... I'm not wealthy. I'm not in a position to deserve a king as a husband. You know, many women probably feel this way. I'm not ugly, but I'm not number one either. Uh, I see every, all the other ladies out there. I see all this other stuff, and I don't measure up. <clears throat> but this is where God's plan works so wonderfully. This is why the Song of Solomon is so sweet. Because what you see is God brings along a man who sees incredible beauty in her. She may not see it, but he sure does, and he brings it out of her. And the key is, he needs to let her know it. You know, a husband's duty for the rest of his life is to convince his wife that he has eyes for her only. He prefers her. He prioritizes her. He thinks of her. Uh, that to him, she's the most beautiful woman in the world. And that provides a security so that she can blossom as a woman. And this is the kind of language that this maiden's beloved gives her. And we're going to see that in a minute. But I want us to notice one other thing here. Interestingly, this woman's father is never mentioned. And we're not sure why. Maybe he, he had died. We don't know. But her siblings, it says, forced her to go out and work in the field. So she's kind of a Cinderella figure, if you will. But what she doesn't understand is that this aspect of her life has its own beauty. You know, hard work and the toils of life uh, have not taken away her attractiveness to Solomon. In fact, good character and the fact that she's a hard worker has attracted him to her. It wins again. Often the difficulties, you know, of life in a person, the things that people go through and the toils and difficulties and all of that bring a humility and bring a depth to a person and especially, in it, and when it is in women, it adds to a woman's beauty. 
and it adds to a man his character. And so if we respond in the right way to all the trials of life, God just begins to do something inside of us that comes out in our life, in our face even. Some read the Song of Solomon and imagine it, the whole thing kind of happening like this. Let me just paint it for you real quick. They imagine Solomon as the king is traveling through his kingdom and he comes through this village named Shulam and in the region of her village, he spots this uh, woman out in the fields, this maiden, and he is instantly drawn to her. But he, as the king, couldn't just go and get her. He doesn't want to do that. He wants her to choose him as a person. Let's go. So he disguises himself as a shepherd and goes out and begins to care for sheep and to try to get to know her and woo her. And later, he then reveals himself after they've fallen in love, and he asks for her hand in marriage. And he comes to get her then, and they, uh, in this, and, and bring all the procession, as we'll see later when it comes to the wedding. He brings all of the regalia out to bring her uh, to, to be married to him. Now, we don't know if it, that's exactly how it went down, but it is interesting that she actually calls him shepherd a few times in the Song of Solomon, and we're going to see that here next. And now what we're going to look at is words of action. Words of action. Look at verse 7. She's still speaking here. She says, Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? What she's saying is she wants to be with the one her soul loves. Where are you? Where are you going to be? I want to be there too. She asks her shepherd lover boy here, where, is he going, where are you going to feed your flocks? But she clarifies that she wants to see him notice at noon. She wants to have a lunch date with him. But she wants it in the light, out in the open, so everybody can see. In fact, she points out that she doesn't want to be one that turneth aside. Now, another way, more literally, to translate that is she doesn't want to be one who veils herself. In, in that culture, a veiled woman was considered a woman of low sexual morals. She didn't want to make herself look like a loose girl out there following all the shepherds around, uh, looking for some, any old guy to be with. No, this is a young woman of honor. And, and what a great principle here that we're looking at for dating and courtship. You know, everything should be out in the open. Nothing hidden, no sneaking around. Even online dating. Listen, if, if, you're, if you're doing something like that, if, that's fine. God may lead you to do something like that, I believe. But you better get a lot of trusted people in your corner that are looking over your shoulder. They're evaluating what you're evaluating. They're seeing what you're seeing. They're with you in this whole thing. Get people you love and trust to be there. We all need accountability. Now, having said that, I want to mention that it was perfectly okay for her to make herself available to him in the appropriate way. It was fine to ask, hey, where are you going to be? <laughs> where are you going to be feeding the sheep? You know, can we just hang out together? And it was okay for her to do that. And that's a reminder, it's, it's true, listen, that God can drop a person from the sky for a single person. He certainly could do that. A guy parachuting out of the sky, he could just land on your front yard. That could happen. But more often, he works through our active faith. We have faith, we trust, we believe, and then we ca by calculation and with uh, good counsel and seeking the Lord, we can move forward. 
We need to get going. Stop sitting on our hands sometimes. But by the way, there's a great analogy here about our relationship with Christ, and I want to point this out. You know, if we want to be close to Jesus Christ, then we need to do our part. Lord, where are you going to be? Where can I find you? Where can I meet with you? Where can I connect with you? Where God is, that's where I want to be. So we need to read our Bible regularly. We need to have a date with the Lord every day. We need to seek him in private. We need to go to church when, when, the, when the doors are open all the time. We're trying to keep an established connection. We want to stay close to him. The only way to stay close is to truly put yourself in a place that is close to him. Now let's see how the shepherd king responds to his beloved here. And these are words of preference. Words of preference. Look in verse 8. If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. Now this, the, the shepherd is Solomon. He's, he's saying, uh, well, since this pretty girl is asking me you know, where I'm going to be, uh, then I'll just go. I'm, I have to tell her. And he says, just follow the flock and feed your goats, <laughs> not your kids, but your goats, where the shepherds hang out. Just bring them over and you do your thing here. I'll be there and you'll see me. But notice that he, what he calls her. <clears throat> he says, fairest among women. Fair means beautiful. He calls her this again in verse 15 and then later again in chapter 2. Right after, she talks about how she feels about her parents. I want you to notice here, she's just uh, made her feelings about her own appearance known. And then he goes, the first thing he says is, fairest among women, most beautiful among all the women. See, in his eyes, she is more beautiful than everybody. And he wants her to know that. And you'll see these words sprinkled throughout the whole book. And he constantly communicates her position in his heart. And men, these are the kind of words that we need to use often. These aren't just dating and courtship words, okay? It's easy for these, this couple, they're young and in this stage, it's easy these words just come flying out. But as married people, these are words that we constantly have to communicate every single day. You may think it in your mind, guys, but does she know that you think it? You may think that she's beautiful, and again, a lot of guys, we think, man, I have, listen, I, I want her to understand she is beautiful. Why can't she accept that? Why does she always keep having to doubt herself? Well, God put it in you to be able to be the one to help her realize how beautiful she really is to you. One wife told us that in her several-year marriage, her husband had only told her twice that she was beautiful. Twice. And one of those was on the wedding night. What a sad state of affairs, guys. And it's good to compliment your wife's cooking or her intelligence or her work ethic, but she, she often wouldn't mind being called beautiful. These kinds of words, you know, those kind of words to say you are beautiful to me are irrigation. They are fertilizer for a great marriage. The less you use them, the more dry and desperate uh, she becomes for that water. The, but the more free you are with these kinds of words, the more growth, the more health, the more life in the relationship. Someone has said this, a successful marriage is an edifice that must be rebuilt every day. <laughs> is an edifice that must be rebuilt every day. So, shepherd lover boy tells lover girl where to find him. I'm, I'll be at work watching the sheep and I want you to go sit right there, bring your, bring your work with you 
and we'll sit and just hang out while we're both there together. Uh, by the way, Emerson Egrich, in Love and Respect, who write, wrote Love and Respect, calls this the shoulder-to-shoulder principle. The guys are energized when their lady just sits there and shows interest in what he does. Uh, it communicates to him, I honor you, I esteem you, I, I, think, I think you're special to me, and I, I respect you. Energy goes into a man through his shoulders <laughs> when you're just next to him and you're by his side. I remember early on in this building project here out on this campus before any buildings were here and we were out doing tractor work and dad would take uh, some, some days and some hours and I would sit on the tractor for a few hours and get out here and you know do all kinds of stuff and dig trenches and, and all of that. But while we were out there on just for hours and hours, my pregnant wife at that time would sit there on the tractor with me for hours, just sitting there. We couldn't talk, really, because it was too loud, but she was just with me. And, you know, um, I would show off to her, you know, on the tractor and show her how good I was. But, but it's, just, um, it's just companionship. It's, it's friendship, and there was energy that was just going into me through my shoulders. You'll be shocked how, how much just sitting there, uh, being a companion, being with him without words, you'll be shocked how much that does for him. He just wants you to be with him. Now, Solomon gets detailed now about the maiden's beauty. These are words of tenderness now. Words of tenderness. Verse 9, I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. <laughs> okay, let me help us out here. Uh, some guys aren't very good with their compliments. I was thinking about this one, though. I mean, actually, rednecks would probably love that compliment. That's a really nice one, you know. But anyway, we laugh at these comments that we're going to see throughout Song of Solomon, but I was thinking, imagine if you transported somebody from Solomon's era to our era, and they heard some of our compliments. I mean, I was thinking ones like, um, you know, how we use the term baby all the time and everything. Babies usually have food all over their face and they stinky stuff in their diaper. You know, why are you calling people baby? Or, you know, you look like a million bucks. <laughs> really? <laughs> like a stack of dollar bills or a literal buck or... You, you say, I look like a dead president? <laughs> what are you saying? In, in some ways, you know, if you actually think about it, Solomon's stuff is much better even than what we use. So don't judge this guy too harshly, my point. Anyway, some scholars take this as an, a singular mare. You're like a beautiful mare, uh, not a company of horses. Uh, one of the Bible commentators, Daniel Estes, he describes the more conventional view. Listen to this. Solomon's mare was his pride and joy. It was the most beautiful and graceful horse in the kingdom. It had been specially selected to draw the king's chariot. Only one horse was good enough for Solomon. The meaning of the comparison is obvious. Other women may be fine, but Shulamith was the only one Solomon prized. So he, he, he was saying, whichever way you look at it, that she is valued and beautiful. And notice in the first part of the verse, he calls her my love my love. He speaks with such tenderness, my love. Now these kinds of pet names and gentle talk, they go a long way in communicating peace between a couple. My love. Just using those kind of term, terms uh, uh, throughout your marriage and throughout your life uh, brings such, uh, such gentleness and tenderness. It says everything is okay. I still love you today. I loved you yesterday and I still love you today. 
And you see the next verses, how he speaks of her looks now. Verse 10, thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck, neck with chains of gold. Now it appears to me that he's talking about her natural beauty that is enhanced by her jewelry. And when you see it uh, connected to the first uh, previous, it really, um, it really makes sense. He was looking at her all decked out, maybe for the wedding here. And we know from ancient Egyptian art that Pharaoh's horses were elaborately, had elaborate headdresses on lined with jewelry. And it would make a horse look prized and majestic. And that's his comparison here. She is prized. She is beautiful. And her beauty is only enhanced by this gorgeous jewelry all over her. And then her girlfriends speak up in verse 11. That's, this is them speaking. They say, we will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver. The ladies say, he loves, he loves how she looks, so let's get her more jewelry. <laughs> let's put it on her. Let's keep loading her up. And God put it in women to love jewelry and pretty things, and they love to help other women be pretty for their man, and nothing wrong with any of that. Actually, I joke with my wife that the ultimate girl word in the world is cute. Okay, that is the ultimate girl word. Everything is cute. That guy is cute, the shirt is cute at the store, the jewelry is cute, the house decoration is cute, the jeans are cute, the coffee mug is cute, the eyelashes are cute, you know, the, the old couple holding hands, that's cute, everything's cute. But anyway, these ladies, they, they see cute in this. They, they love is just blossoming between these two and they want to help her decorate herself with cute jewelry. And then God put it in men to work really hard so they can buy cute jewelry. <laughs> Um, but I, I'm talking about all this pretty stuff here, but I will mention something that you godly women here already know. <clears throat> and that is that God tells us later in 1 Peter chapter 3 that all the outward pretty stuff isn't what makes you beautiful. The thing that actually makes you pretty is, as he says in 1 Peter 3 there, the hidden man of the heart, the inward person that you are. But as long as that is remembered, then certainly nothing wrong in Scripture from enhancements to beauty. Now the maiden speaks again, verse 12. While the king sitteth at his table, my spike nerd sendeth forth the smell thereof. It just delights her that while the king is sitting at his table eating, that she knows he will be thinking of her. The fragrance of her internal and external beauty stays with him at all times, even when she's not there. Guys, a little secret and this is what every wife wants to know right here. Does he think about me when we're apart? That's what she wants. And then she talks about how much she thinks of him. Verse 13, a bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. Not only is she aware of how he feels about her, but she has deep feelings for him as well. She can't help but think about him 24-7. These two are in love. She lays down at night and dreams of being married. She imagines uh, being able to be as intimate as any two humans can be, lying arm in arm, just uh, being with each other. You know, women of this time would wear pouches of perfume around their neck, and she could really then be saying, like this myrrh, this fragrant myrrh around my neck here that sends off its fragrance 24-7, uh, that lies between my breasts here. The same is m are my thoughts with him. He's near and dear to my heart. And let me point out, he is, this man has done such a good job of communicating his love to her. 
so much so that she has now a secure, that she is secure in his love, even when he's not there. She's lying down at night, she's away from him, but she's thinking of him, and she knows, she can, she can just sense their love for one another. That's how it ought to be in a relationship. Uh, even when we're apart, we ought to be able to know that person loves me and be secure and confident in that. But not only is she secure, but she's also nourished and refreshed by him. Look at verse 14. She says, my beloved is unto me a cluster of campfire or henna blooms, would be the more modern term, in the vineyards of Engedi. The place known as Engedi was a famous oasis in the Judean wilderness. It was an area that was lush with water and life in this barren desert. So a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi would be something that would be alive and beautiful and healthy in this dry place and full of aroma. One Bible commentator said that the king, this, that is Solomon, was in Gedi to the girl, an oasis of life in a desert of monotony. And like a weary traveler, she found refreshment in him. Again, though, a wonderful picture of our King Jesus here. You know, our time spent with him are like an oasis in this dry, dead world. Work issues, people issues, this is the stuff you deal with on a week-to-week basis. Family issues, financial issues, sin issues all around, the devil attacking you. It's like a de- desert out there. Amen. And it's dry and it's tough. And it's hard to find goodness and it's hard to find life sometimes. But listen, a relationship with Jesus is like an oasis in Engedi. This is the place where we can actually meet with the Lord and find some nourishment so we can go out in this desert and do what we got to do. Don't neglect your time with him every day. Stay spiritually refreshed. Then Solomon's words again here. These are words of affection now. And now he's going to speak about her natural beauty. Verse 15. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. Again, fair means beautiful. You are beautiful, my love. You have dove's eyes. He especially noted the beauty in her eyes. And uh, Adam Clark points out that the large and beautiful dove of Syria is supposed to be referred to here. The eyes of which are remarkably fine, he says. Now, it's true that some women have beautiful eyes by birth. But you know what? Something happens to the eyes at the new birth also. I'm telling you. A woman that is deeply in love with God has a particular beauty in her eyes. It just comes out. And now she responds with her own affection here, verse 16, Behold, She's now speaking to him. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved, yea, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. So, she, so this is a clear response to his words. He says, you are fair, you're beautiful. She says, no, you are fair. And that she's using actually the masculine form of the same word. So she's saying, no, you're handsome and pleasant or delightful to be with. So these two, again, are definitely in the young stages of love. You're beautiful. No, you're handsome. I said it first. No, you, no, you. Yuck, you know, it's nasty. It's getting mushy in here. But, but this is young love, and it is a good thing. It is a good thing. It's celebrated here, and it, is, it must mature wisely, but it is a good thing. And it might change in how it looks a little bit, but there's still got to be some of that stuff going on. God loves that. But again, I point out, this is the first time, though, now she has spoken about his looks. Everything before this has been about him as a person, his character, Christ character chemistry. So, yea, as it says here in the last part, yea, pleasant, also our bed is green. And then verse 17, the beams of our house are cedar and our rafters are fir. The image here that she's painting is as if they're on, the walk, on a walk in the countryside. 
and, and the use of plants and scenes picture their love and relationships. So our bed is green, our beams are of cedar, our rafters are fir. Perhaps they're sitting down on the grass to have a picnic. Nature is their house. Again, they're out in the open here. They're during their dating time and courtship era. And, and so they're out in the open. They're doing what courting couples do. But unfortunately, many married people stop doing. They're going out on dates. You know, it doesn't have to be expensive. Look at what it says. Trees are our rafters. <laughs> In other words, just take a walk. And it doesn't have to look like this back and forth mushy talk all the time. That's not what he's saying. But love matures over time in a marriage and gets sweeter and deeper. But the words must still be full of love and pleasantness and acknowledging each other's beauty. You know, my, my wife and I have been dating weekly for 25 years. This year, it'll be 25 years of marriage. And I love our dates still. But it's often so simple. We'll go out to eat. And then usually we end up at Costco or Target or something like that. <laughs> Our rafters are painted white steel. <laughs> but, but truly, just having a once-a-week time to eat and drive around even in the car and walk through stores is very, very precious to us. We both look forward to our time together, and I guard it with my life because that, those, those times are times that we get to reconnect and not discuss all the stuff of life, but just reconnect with the two of us. Studies continually show that husbands and wives who report more frequent date nights report being happier in their marriage and less likely to divorce in the future. And couples who reported frequent date nights were 21 percentage points more likely to report being very happy with their sexual relationship. So the point is, don't wait until February 14th every year to go on a date. <laughs> All right, now we're going to see words of confidence here as we wrap this up. We're into chapter 2 now. Chapter 2, verse 1, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. There's been much study on this, these phrases, and, but most scholars see this phrase as the maiden speaking, not Solomon. Uh, this, but this line was sometimes attributed to Solomon, and, and so therefore they allegorically apply it to Jesus Christ. So we, there are songs that talk about the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley in writings and songs in a lot of people's minds. And it does sound like a poetic title for Jesus Christ, and I, I certainly think that's a beautiful way, something beautiful to call him. But unfortunately, it really seems to be a misinterpretation. So if this is a, the maiden speaking, if she's describing herself, she's describing herself then as two flowers. But they're not a rose and a lily like we think of today. They were different, in Hebrew, they're a totally different kind of flower. They, they don't even know exactly what kind of flower, but they were very common back in the day. So these were very commonplace wildflowers. Um, so it appears that what she's saying is that her view of herself, and you know, interestingly, her view of herself has changed a little bit. From early on, don't look at me. I'm, you know, my skin is not how it should be. I'm, made to, I'm forced to work out in the sun. Now she has opened up a little bit, and she says, I am a flower. I have, there's a flower quality to me, but I'm still a more common flower. And so, you know, I, I, as I read this, it sure seems like his words in some ways have moved the needle a little bit on her view of herself. Nice, nice job, fella. But, but now watch then how he responds to her comment. Verse two, as the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. He says, my love, if you're a flower, then all the other girls are thorns. 
Get out your notebook, fellas. That was a really good one. You need to mark that one down. This, this, this man has given his maiden a precious gift, the gift of confidence, the gift of security in their relationship. And through his words, words. And then she responds with words of honor. Look at this, words of honor, verse three. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. She says, you know, being with you and all of this is like being under the shade of a big life-giving tree. In other words, I feel safe. I feel nourished by you. I feel the sweetness of love. And ladies, listen, be sure to let your man know whenever he does something that makes you feel this way. He needs to hear it. Thank him for his hard work to provide and, and make you feel secure in life. Thank him for the effort that he puts forth to, lo to love you. Brag about him. Show your admiration. These are words of honor that I'm telling you will pay dividends in your relationship. It will fill him with a desire to keep going and doing more and more and more. But let's remember here as we, as we wrap this up that Jesus is the ultimate example of love and loving words. We should take our cues from him. You know, the Bible is God's love note to his bride, the church. Over and over again, he, he makes sure that we're sec secure and safe in his love for us. Think about Romans chapter eight, verses 38 and 39. Listen to these words again. For I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, what safety and security those words develop in my spirit. If I read those every day, man, I would be just bounding with security between me and the Lord. He loves me. There's nothing that can separate God's love from me. Once God's married to somebody, once you've accepted him as Savior, and there, there is that marriage relationship, he makes sure that you know he will never divorce you. He will never divorce you. God is our example of how to act, how to speak with our spouse and and to provide deep security in their heart. So, everybody, let's be a life-giving tree. Like, like this says, let's give, be a life-giving tree to our spouse. You can come under the shade of this tree and eat of the fruit anytime you need to. I'm a life-giving tree to you. Lord, we love you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www. .thehomechurch.net From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.